Welcome back to The Word is Resistance. This is the podcast where we're exploring the Bible in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the context in which we're living today. My name is Will Green. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and Surge Action. Surge stands for Showing Up for Racial Justice. It's an acronym. S-U-R-J, Surge, Showing Up for Racial Justice. Surge is a national network of groups and individuals organizing white people for racial justice. This podcast is designed to be a resource for white people working to resist racism and white supremacy who are part of Christian traditions that read the Bible. We're bringing our commitment to fight white supremacy and live anti-racist lives into direct engagement with the lectionary. We welcome your feedback and especially appreciate feedback and accountability from listeners of color. To introduce myself, my name is Will Green, and I'm a United Methodist pastor who lives on land that was inhabited by Pentecook people before the Christian invasion of 1620. I'm a white, cisgender, gay man, pronouns he, him, his, who serves a congregation in so-called Andover, Massachusetts. In addition to ministry in my congregation, I'm also involved in the work of prison abolition. I believe in a world without prisons. In this episode, I'm going to be reflecting on two lectionary readings for Sunday, February 3rd, 2019. The readings are a psalm and a very famous and beloved story about Jesus. The story about Jesus is from Luke chapter 4, and it's the story where we sometimes say that Jesus gives a totally badass in-your-face sermon that the congregation can't handle, and then they run him out of town because he's so real and intense. Remember that story? Well, rather than stick with uh, the interpretation that reads the story this way, I'm going to disrupt that version. I'll problematize reading the story in a way that celebrates a stereotypical vision of an outspoken troublemaker who calls people out, and instead I'm going to approach it from a different angle. I'll also try to disrupt a traditional reading of the psalm as well. Uh... Though normally associated with a very different energy than the badassness of Luke 4, the psalm, Psalm 73, is often read, excuse me, Psalm 71, (laughs) Psalm 71. It's often read a certain way that I think will be immediately familiar to you, and I'm going to try to trouble that interpretation and the assumptions that go along with it. The point of troubling these interpretations is, of course, to open ourselves up to new possibilities and experiences so that we can pursue the goals of anti-racism and community building. I'm not just trying to argue with what's popular, but I know that sometimes the stuff we take for granted and assume is our biggest obstacle. So here we go. We start with Psalm 71, verses 1 through 7. This is the New Revised Standard Version. I'll read the whole passage. Psalm 71, verses 1 through 7. In you, O Lord, I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. 
Upon you have I leaned from my birth. It was you who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. Amen. That's it, the beginning of Psalm 71. Now, even if you couldn't quote any of it, I'm guessing it all probably feels familiar to you in general. That's just my sense, and I could be wrong. But I'm guessing that for most church-going people, every sentiment of this psalm feels very familiar. I'm just saying it's a typical sort of psalm, something you'd expect to hear in church on a Sunday. And I say that because I'm a church-going person, and I can say it certainly feels familiar to me, you know, even though I had to look up Psalm 71 when I saw it was in the lectionary for this week. I was like, which one's Psalm 71? And then once I read it, it's like, oh yeah, okay, it's one of those. Uh, It doesn't just sound familiar, but I can also say it's really not hard for me to spiritually connect with these words. You know, I've prayed something like this many times off the cuff while visiting someone in the hospital or I could imagine praying this when talking to someone on the phone who's navigating a crisis. It's really easy for me to recognize this psalm and the spiritual energy that it invokes as a typical Christian spirituality. It's pretty normal. So now I'm going to rip that to shreds. First off, let's start with this idea that God is our refuge, our protection, who takes care of us and keeps us safe. As a white person, I try to be critical and aware of words like safety and protection, words that seem so benign and so easy. Uh, We have to ask, what do these words mean in a racist culture? I've come to see that my assumptions about safety and protection are actually a huge problem. Now, to give an obvious example, think about the relationship, as we often do on the word is resistance, think about the relationship between whiteness and the police, right? A critical reflection on whiteness from an anti-racist perspective helps us realize that the police protect whiteness, right? We know this. Safety for white people so often means being kept away from people of color, right? Or keeping people of color away from uh, those of us who are white. Uh, Safety for white people means always having the violence of the state and the power of the media and the force of all the dominant social institutions to enforce white supremacy and defend whiteness. That's what safety means, in our culture for white people. So as people committed to anti-racism, we should be suspicious of the typical ways that churches and other white institutions use the words safety and protection. We always have to ask, safety for whom? What does it mean to be safe? And how, how does safety mean different things for people in different groups based on social power? You know, what does safety mean uh, for... Uh, white people? What does safety mean for people of color? What does safety mean for people who live in in different communities, people who speak different languages, or people who are queer, or elderly, or disabled? Safety is a very loaded term, right? So I'm trying to get us to think about Psalm 71 and the way that white churches could use this prayer and prayers like it to create this comfy sense of Christian spirituality in which we are safe, and God protects us. Now, when we approach the psalm from this angle, we can see how our passive assumptions about this psalm can, in fact, be tools of white supremacy. When a church full of white people in America prays to God to keep us safe, we have to ask, are we upholding the racist constructs of safety that define our world? And the answer is, of course, yes, we are. We're, we're always upholding these things unless we consciously work to dismantle them. 
Think of it this way. If a politician on television in a speech says, I alone can keep you safe, so flee to me for protection. Now, if that worries us, shouldn't an idea about God that says the same thing worry us too? So the idea that God is a refuge to whom we flee for protection is a huge problem. It's not innocent. Frankly, when most white Christians in church hear these words, it's very easy for white people to fall back on the idea, you know, God will always make us feel safe. So white people in church, when they hear this prayer, when they pray these words, you know, might, you know, at some level, consciously or not, say, oh yeah, when I'm feeling threatened by the presence of black people, God will protect me. Or when white people feel threatened because we have to think about our uh, role in unjust systems and propping them up, you know, we... We may just think, hey, my religion, my God, my God ought to protect me from this feeling of feeling uncomfortable or in danger. It's a short line from feelings uh, like, you know, like I'm describing here. It's a short line between that and starting to think that it's actually unchristian to challenge racism and question white supremacy. Now, why would anyone think it's unchristian to challenge racism and question white supremacy? Well, because of Psalm 71. Do you see it? If God's supposed to make me feel safe, and if it makes me feel uncomfortable, and if it seems dangerous to confront racism, which incidentally it is, you know, then we have a problem. So the familiar traditional spirituality of Psalm, 20, of Psalm 71, it can easily be an excuse you know, for disengaging from the struggle. Or it can be an excuse for why someone would not show up for racial justice, if you will. An interesting way to think about this uh, it's, is to say that praying Psalm 71 can function like a spiritual 911 call. And just to be clear, I'm not a fan of, you know, 911 calls in general. Uh, reflecting on this psalm from an anti-racist perspective is making me ask myself, you know, I, can, I know I'm not a fan of encouraging people to use 911 to feel safe, but do I promote the idea through prayers like Psalm 71 that in order to feel safe, people just need to make an emergency call to God? Hmm? No wonder churches have a hard time critiquing the police state. We have a 911 theology sometimes, a theology of emergency assistance that teaches us that God will solve our problems and keep us safe. So theology, biblical interpretation, this sort of spirituality can enforce our reliance on the police state. Now, it's important for me to say here, to realize that safety itself is not the problem. The problem is not that people actually want to feel safe and live lives where they're cared for and not in danger. That's, that's not a bad thing in itself. Uh, the, the problem is the way these terms operate under white supremacy. Yeah? Think of it this way. The goals of abolition, as an as a abolitionist, I know that the goal is not just to get people to stop calling 911. There's a much bigger goal than that, which is to create a world where we really are safe, right? And where we do care for each other, so that police and state violence can't be exploited to make uh, people feel safe. It's a bigger conversation. I just want to say it. It's also easy for me as a white person to forget that safety is actually a very real concern for many people. And so I'm not trying to critique safety itself, but it's the way in which that concept and fears around it are exploited 
under white supremacy. Now, let me pivot a little and take this in a slightly different direction. I'm sure you've heard, just as often as I have, this criticism from church people who don't care about social justice that religion should just make people feel better, right? They say that church should be a place where people go to recharge their batteries, kind of like a traditional interpretation of Psalm 71 suggests, you know, God is our refuge. And because church should be a place where we just recharge our batteries, any mention of of white supremacy or social injustice in church is an affront to God. Yeah, you've ever heard this? I'm guessing that people who would choose to listen to this podcast are way beyond that sort of thing. Obviously, you're all... We are all rolling our eyes at how irritating it is when people say this. But I have a concern that I think is related, which is relevant for people who do listen to the word is resistance. I want us to think about the idea uh, that religion should provide us with strength and grounding so that we can do what we need to do. Sometimes in activist work, we ask ourselves, you know, what keeps you going? Where do you get the strength you need to engage in this work? These sorts of questions. Great questions. Not bad questions at all. But I wonder if sometimes the way we ask these questions is also a a sort of a Psalm 71 slash 911 theology. Do we sometimes fall back into this, this trap? You know, sometimes people say that because they go to church on Sunday and rely on God as a refuge, they can stay involved in the struggle or they can do what they're supposed to do. I'd like us to question that. I'd like us to question this binary uh, that says God is one that we go to to recharge our batteries so that then we can go back and go be engaged in the world in a meaningful way. This binary of, you know, God is away from the struggle. Do you see what I'm saying? That God is in a safe place? That we should expect to experience and feel God times when we're feeling protected? Now, that idea might work for you, and if it truly does, I don't know what's best for you. Uh, But I think it's worth at least considering that we should challenge this idea that God is located someplace far away, Uh, that we can flee to for safety and rest and renewal. Sometimes, maybe, our idea of God simply needs to be found in the fight, right? I mean, we know this, in the struggle, in the danger, in the risk. It doesn't just have to be an either-or. I'm just trying to get us to question how how, how the way we read Scripture might be upholding white supremacy, and also how our spirituality, although we don't intend it, there might be connections between our spirituality and uh, the the unjust systems that we're a part of. I think our language and our practices around spirituality and self-care might sometimes uphold some bad stuff, some bad stuff that allows us to avoid responsibility and evade risk and to give um, the excuses that white people make to disengage. I've just recently been introduced, and I'm sure this is very old news to some of you, the distinction between self-care, you know, that I need to go away so that I can take care of myself or so that God can take care of me, you know, Psalm 71, and community care, right? The idea that we need to care for each other. You don't just need to go away to, to be well, but you need to engage and connect to be well. 
And I'm not talking about that old, I'm an introvert, extrovert sort of thing. Now, of course, also, we can't all stay on the front lines all the time. Of course, we need to care for ourselves. Of course, we all deserve pleasure and joy. But I'm just saying that white people need to be critical about these things. God does not call us away from danger. It's very easy for us to fall back on that. God isn't only found in the places where we're getting stronger and and we're being cared for. God's also in places that are very dangerous. And it's good good for us as white people uh, to know this. Again, I'm not saying white people can't have any quiet time or that everything has to be overwhelming. But I think sometimes we promote a 911 theology that makes it harder for us to face the fact that people aren't safe in this world. You know, we promote that without realizing it. We know that, you know, calling 911 doesn't always, for heaven's sakes, uh, create safety or help keep anyone safe. You know, it does harm a lot of the time, obviously. And sometimes praying Psalm 71 and submitting to our common assumptions about it, sometimes that doesn't strengthen us or make us well either. These things we've been taught to trust and believe in actually can do us harm and be very bad for us. Now, of course, we should take care of ourselves, again. But if our idea of taking care of ourselves and if our idea of who God is implies not being connected to others, then we're being very white. Self-care is great. Community care is great. But sometimes we use the language of self-care like we use the language of spirituality and the language of God really to protect whiteness. And that's what I'm trying to get us to reflect on, okay? So... I've, I've rewritten Psalm 71 uh, in light of, of what I've been saying thus far, you know, trying to challenge these assumptions that I'm naming. It, so I want to read to you a, a redo, a, a reconceptualization of Psalm 71. And how this is going to work is I'll read a line from Psalm 71, like I just read a few minutes ago, and then I'm going to read something I wrote that turns... The, our assumptions about that phrase on its head, you know, that sort of inverts and plays with and, and troubles. So I'll say, you know, instead of, quote Psalm 71, I'll say, how about, and then I'll give this new idea, uh, some new language to what I'm suggesting here. All right, here we go. A rethinking of Psalm 71. Instead of, in you, O Lord, I take refuge, how about, Because of what I'm trying to learn, I'm going to step out, show up, and engage. Instead of, let me never be put to shame, how about, I need to overcome my stigma around shame. Instead of, in your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me, how about, for the sake of justice, let me struggle. Instead of, incline your ear to me and save me, how about, I want to learn with others so that we can be in solidarity and community together. Instead of, be to me a rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me, for you are my rock and my refuge, how about, I don't want to run away and hide. I want to move deeper into meaningful community, even if it challenges my idea of safety. Instead of, rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel, how about, A whole lot of what I've been taught will keep me safe is in fact wickedness, injustice, and cruelty. And the things I've been taught to fear are actually beautiful. 
instead of, for you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth, upon you have I leaned from my birth, how about, I have been raised in white supremacy. I have lived in and learned to accept a racist society. The things that are most familiar and comfortable and easy to assume about life and about God are products and instruments of racism. We're almost there. Instead of, it was you who took me from my mother's womb, how about, I've been nurtured by some bad stuff from the moment I was born. And finally, instead of, my praise is continually of you, how about, I'm just beginning to imagine what an idea of you, God, and an idea of me, outside of white supremacy and capitalism would even be. So that's, that's my, new, my new prayer, so to speak, a meditation here. And what I'm trying to get at it is that when we flee from the struggle to hide in the refuge of our faith, it's easy to forget that our faith is built on some horrible stuff. Our concept of Christianity itself is built on oppression and injustice, and we need to problematize and resist and undo our own traditions. We cannot equate God with what we've been taught when we know that there are so many lies and ills that we have learned to abide by and tolerate and celebrate. In this world, if we just flee towards something where we feel safe, then we're going to go right into the familiar arms of white supremacy that, that we know so well. Self-care is not bad, and trusting in God with strong faith is wonderful, but we need analysis and accountability around our whole lives. Okay, now let's take a moment, uh, cleanse the palate, having said, you know, shared this about Psalm 71, and and now I want to uh, go into the gospel reading a little bit, uh, but this is going to be shorter. Moving to the gospel reading, I'm not going to read the reading. I'm just going to remind you that this is the story of Jesus being chased out of his out of his uh, worship community because he challenges their assumptions. That's Luke chapter 4, 21 through 30. Uh, it's very easy to celebrate this story. It's good to celebrate this story. You know, one could say, and it's often said, that something along the lines of that in this story, you know, Jesus turns away from the people that surround him and he's able to move on towards something new. He imagines himself outside the boundaries that have been set for him, which is awesome. He anticipates, you know, what is expected of him, and then he rejects that, and uh, he goes elsewhere, which, you know, that's great. A common way of reading this is, uh, you know, with this theme of righteous confrontation, and we love righteous confrontation, where Jesus, we know the phrase, is Jesus speaks truth to power, and he refuses to be domesticated. Hey, White liberal pastors love to talk about this. You know, this is what it means to be a preacher. We have freedom of the pulpit. We don't care who we offend. And we speak truth to power. Okay, now I'm rolling my eyes. Because, frankly, I'm very suspicious of this familiar interpretation of the story because of, you know, pastors who say this but don't do shit. You know, I just don't see pastors who like to, uh, you know, sometimes like to really get into this interpretation of the story. I just don't see these same people actually living this out. You know, frankly, pastors just don't get thrown out of town that often. You know, sometimes there are very rare and significant examples where that does happen, but come on. I mean, really, really. For all the times I've heard rooms full of pastors chuckle about how 
you know, I'm radical like Jesus is and my people can't handle it. But, uh, I mean, come on, forget it. It's just not, it's not true. Again, if you, if you're really called to do that and you really do that, that's amazing. Stick with that interpretation. Or if you even want to hold this out as a very serious challenge that you want to try to live up to or hold yourself to, that's, that's great too. But this idea that, you know, oh yeah, this is what it means to preach. Come on. I, w- I want to read against this interpretation. Here's how I want to do it. Not just by, you know, shit-talking pastors. Um, here's, what I, here's what I'm getting at. I want to remind us that Surge challenges us to organize as white people with white people to resist white supremacy. Okay, we can't abandon our obligation as white people to work with white people. And I worry that this interpretation, we say, you know, you speak the truth and they kick you out and that's just how it is because people can't handle it. Mm, I don't know about that. I think that's going down a very dangerous path. It's not enough to just call ourselves prophets and say, oh yeah, people can't handle my analysis or, you know, white people, my white church can't handle me. You know, Jesus got thrown out of town and my church can't handle me either. Yeah. Instead of pretending, um, you know, that we aren't respected in our hometown, we need to learn better how to engage where we are. Do you get what I'm saying? No, I think interpreting this story in the stereotypical way uh, can become and create an obstacle for us from engaging where we really are. Now, don't get me wrong. If you have work to do outside the traditional white church, that's awesome. By all means, do it. If you're really doing it, then do it. But let's not fool ourselves into thinking that we're doing something we're not. You know? Uh, we need to avoid uh, the, the easy answers, the cliches, the cliches that are so common uh, in the white church. And sometimes that includes the Jesus as badass cliche, if you will. We need to make connections, build community, find our place. But this uh, doesn't mean that it's always going to be safe for us or that we worship the concepts of safety and protection. Do you get what I'm saying? I'm suggesting a very fine line here. On the one hand, we can't worship safety. We can't uh, be obsessed with protecting ourselves or think that God is always going to keep us feel safe. On the other side, let's not pretend we're something we're not and let's not pretend that we fit into this or that we're supposed to fit into this radical image of, you know, Jesus as prophetic badass. Do you get it? It's a fine line. I'll say it this way. In Luke 4, Jesus suggests that there's more to the tradition than the traditional way of doing things. Jesus suggests there's more to the tradition than the traditional way of doing things. And as white people committed to anti-racism, we need to do just the same. We can't avoid our people. We can't just fall back into the spirituality that makes us feel comfy and safe. And our cliches and stereotypes about Jesus won't save anybody. They're just excuses for more of the same. What we can say is that there needs to be more to the tradition than the traditional way of doing things.
this portion of the podcast, I'm supposed to try to point toward actions that listeners can take. And I have to say, I don't have a specific activity or organization per se to highlight, but I do have something, a phrase I want to share. And I might be backtracking here and taking a little bit back what I just said about the traditional interpretation of the Luke 4 story, but I'm, I'm going to say this anyways. The phrase is this, expect more failure than you're used to experiencing. Strange phrase. I could just say expect failure, but that's, that's too harsh. I want to say we need to expect more failure than we're used to experiencing. I'm offering this in the spirit of challenging the assumption that we're supposed to know how to fix everything, have all the answers, you know, guarantee ourselves that we're capable of making things better before we do anything. L- let me tell two stories, two examples where I proposed projects at my church and they both went down in flames. They failed. I experienced more failure in these stories than I'm, I'm used to expecting. Uh, there was a lot of bad feelings, created difficulties, but you know what? I'm actually glad we pursued both of these things and I don't regret it. Now in these stories, I'm and in this section of the podcast, I am not here talking about trying to cause trouble for trouble's sake. Okay. I am not talking about deliberately sabotaging a church from the inside. Not at all. Now, if that's your thing, Fine, go, go do it, but that's not what I'm talking about. Okay, let me tell these stories very quickly. First, uh, about, well, two years ago, uh, we tried to switch banks at my church because our bank is involved in financing the Dakota Access Pipeline. We did not end up switching banks, which is heartbreaking to me and has far worse consequences for others. I, I really thought we would. I didn't expect to fail in this sense. I thought it would work. Uh, but it was a, it was a mess. That's okay. That's the first story. <laughs> Second story. A year later, so this is a year ago, we talked in my church about signing on to a letter to the governor that was objecting to proposed changes to state policies around visiting people in prison. Again, it failed. <laughs> the church would not even sign the letter. The process was bad. It was contentious. I thought it was going to be an easy action that the church would be willing to take. It seemed, you know, it didn't seem controversial uh, to me. Now, failed the first story, failed in the second story. I wish I had won both of these battles in the church. Uh, they would have been helpful in, in winning the, the bigger wars that these battles are part of. Uh, but we did our best, and even though we failed... Uh, There were outcomes in learning that have been helpful, that have been helpful, and that have been good. First of all, uh, both of these stories, both of these attempts to do something, they brought to the surface some major issues for the church that would not have surfaced otherwise, I don't think. So that's good. Also, I want to say personally for me and for the other people who were on board, it was really clarifying to realize why we're committed to certain principles in the first place and what that would look like in community. That was really helpful. Also, I mean, as everybody knows, when you fail at something, you learn. You know, you get better and closer. You know, you just learn from failure. So that's, that's a helpful part of it. And the, the last thing I want to say is that uh, our struggle in... In my church, uh, both around switching banks and also around signing this letter, 
Our experiences were very helpful for other congregations who did switch banks and who did sign the letter. You know, we didn't win here, but we helped others get across the finish line through encouragement, through strategy, through lessons learned, also just through saying, hey, they're trying it down there at that church. So the point of pursuing these projects, you know, was to actually meet our goals. We weren't just trying to be edgy or to shock people or, you know, to, to prove that we need to push ourselves more than we think we can handle. The point of pursuing these was to do the right thing. Sometimes we fail to do the right thing. Sometimes we know what the right thing to do is, and we fail. That's part of this journey. Failure is not always bad in the way that, as bad as we think it is, or bad in the way that we think it will be. And I, I think we have to expect some failure. You just have to. You, you have to expect some failure. It's certainly more than we are led to believe uh, is going to happen. And that's just what I want to say in terms of, of action. Take a risk on something that maybe you're not ready for, something that might not work. It sounds like foolish advice. Who knows? Maybe you'll be ready for it and you'll figure it out. And who knows? Maybe things will go uh, really, really bad and to turn into something super horrible. Uh, but you got to try. Sometimes you have to go for it anyway. We need a lot more of that. Now, I'm bringing this up in part because of Luke 4. You know, I want to say that um, I was not run out of town in these stories because I'm some badass prophet, you know, and, and I failed. It doesn't mean I gave a great sermon, but, you know, failing is, is, is part of it. So that's what I want to offer. Try something that might feel a little beyond what you're capable of. And I'm not, I'm not saying set yourself up for failure, okay? I'm not saying set out to fail, but I'm saying I'm trying to encourage more risky creativity. And to qualify, I just also have to be really clear. The stuff we're talking about, the stuff we're doing, the stuff that's asked of us, it's no joke. You know, this is not a game. There are consequences for failure. I'm not saying we should just be screwing around and that, you know, fighting white supremacy is some self-exploratory bullshit where, you know, whatever. No, our failure is horrible consequences. Horrible. People die. Suffering increases. Really serious stuff. But here's, here's my point, to get back to thinking about Psalm 71. Uh, don't flee to an idea of God for safety. Instead, flee your idea of safety for the sake of learning something new about God. Thank you for joining me. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org. And our podcast lives at SoundCloud, and you can also find us on Stitcher and iTunes. Search the word as resistance. You can interact with us there, and transcripts are available on our website. As always, the music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the Freedom Movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. It's called We Are Building Up a New World. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, which is a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions in other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014. It's being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. And we're deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. <laughs>